We're looking this morning at Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. If you have your copy of Scripture, as always, I know that it's going to be helpful for you to have that open and to be reading along with me. There is a lot in this letter. There's a lot that Paul packs into Ephesians, and if we're not focusing carefully, we would miss so much of it. And so we're looking this morning at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Paul, having earlier in this chapter reminded the Ephesians of what they were spiritually by nature, that they and we were dead in sins and trespasses, that we walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and were children of wrath just as the rest, Um, all mankind in the same spiritual condition by nature. And yet, Paul, by way of contrast, has said in verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up and made us alive together in Christ. What What incredible riches of grace, that when we were dead and could do nothing, God did what we could never do and brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life and has given us everything in Christ, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. And now we're looking in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 where the apostle says now, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I'm sure if if you have been online or on the news for the last couple weeks, you have heard a tremendous amount about the royal family. Uh, With the death of Elizabeth has come a reminder of this aristocracy, this reminder of this unique uh, privilege for for a thousand years that certain individuals have had to serve as members of the royal family in a variety of capacities. And one of the things that I have been reminded of as the stories and all of the conversations have ensued over the last two or three weeks is, is that... Um, outside of the royal family are commoners. 
Uh, in fact, one of my friends asked, can Camilla even be um, called the queen? Isn't she a commoner? Well, no, she actually wasn't a commoner. But, but many have been, and many of the royal family have married commoners. And when they have married a commoner, they have become part of the royal family. They have been brought in. They have been given all the privileges. They have been recognized as having a unique status that everyone outside of the royal family has no right to. There is a very stark divide in that long history between the royal family and the commoners. And I think that serves as a somewhat helpful illustration for what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He is, he is noting as he now backtracks in a sense, he has already told the Ephesian believers, what they were spiritually by nature, what, what their spiritual condition was. They were dead in sins and trespasses. They had nothing with which to commend themselves to God. They were under the wrath of God by nature, and yet God blessed them because God is rich in mercy and grace. And God did for them in Christ what they could never do for themselves. And yet here now, Paul is going back. It's, it, there's a sense in which Paul wants to reinforce for these believers, what they were, because he knows how easily we all forget what we were by nature. And here, instead of the apostle telling the Ephesians again what they were spiritually, what their spiritual condition was, he is giving them, in a very real sense, a spiritual biography. He's saying, if you want to know what your spiritual biography is, if you want to remember and you need to remember what your biography was by nature, he says, I'm going to remind you, he says, you were without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. That is all mankind's spiritual biography by nature. Um, I love this. William Jay, he was a, a 19th century English theologian pastor. He was a friend of John Newton's, actually. He was there when John Newton was dying, and William Jay, reflecting on this, says this. He says, secular nobility derives all its luster in flesh and blood, and if retraced, will be found to originate in the dust of the ground from which Adam was taken. So even the royal family, if they could trace it back far enough, are going to find themselves from the dust, like everybody else, and Jay goes on to say this, it has little value except in the fancies of men, but our relation to God confers real and durable honor against which the most magnificent titles in the world are mere shadows and smoke. Now, what Paul's going to say is, by nature, your biography is alienation. By grace, your heritage is habitation. This passage is going to move in three stages. Eric Alexander has pointed this out. There's three stages, alienation, reconciliation, and habitation. Isn't that interesting? By nature, the first stage, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. And yet, Christ comes, and he reconciles us to God. He makes peace through the blood of his cross. And the end of the passage is habitation. You now are being built a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Our spiritual biography moves from alienation to habitation. 
And I want us to consider those three things, especially this morning. I want us to consider first a spiritual alienation, what we were by nature, what our spiritual heritage is. And then I want us to consider a spiritual reconciliation, what Christ did for us in the work of redemption. And then we'll consider a spiritual habitation, what God has made us by his grace, a spiritual alienation, a spiritual reconciliation, and a spiritual habitation. Well, notice that Paul twice here, and once in verse 11 and then once in verse 12, uses that little moniker, and and he presses home that what he wants you to do and what he wants me to do, what he's trying to accomplish here, is that he's going to press on us that we need to remember We need to remember, notice verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles. Now, my guess is that everybody in this room by nature is a Gentile, and so it's it's good, that's good, because Paul is speaking to a church of predominantly Gentile um, new believers. These are men and women who had been in bondage to uh, false religions They were functionally atheists. They worshiped many gods, but none of those gods were the true God. They they were into magic arts, and you'll remember back in Acts chapter 19 when Paul had gone into Ephesus, when he had come to the city where this church was established and he had preached the gospel, that many had been converted. They had been engaged in occult practices, and they brought their books and they burned them, the scriptures say. That, That was their evidence that they had been brought out of that darkness of paganism, that, that darkness that they were enslaved to, and so great was the conversion, and so dark was what they were brought out of, that it's estimated, theologians have estimated that the amount of books that they brought to burn, these dark magic arts, were up to $10 million. That's how, that's how in darkened these people were, and Paul is saying to them, remember, remember what you were. He says in verse 11, he says it at the top of verse 12, remember that you were at that time. Now, I have already noted that this passage moves through three stages, alienation, reconciliation, habitation. It's also interesting that those three things are denoted by these words, verse 12, at that time, verse 13, but now, and then verse 19, consequently. At that time, but now, consequently. And Paul is saying, you need to remember what you were. Um, It is a good practice for us, even if we grew up in Christian homes, to remember what we were before the Lord drew us to himself by his spirit. It's good for my soul to remember what I was when I was lost in darkness and to remember when God drew me out of that darkness and brought me into his light. It's good for us to remember because what happens is as we go on with our Christian life, as we make progress, as we perhaps become more dignified socially, as we don't look like what we once were anymore because God has transformed us, there is always a danger that we forget where we came from. There's always a danger that we forget where we came from. Um, I have had, I have had um, individuals under my ministry who I, I always sort of got the sense hated hearing this because they thought they were so dignified. 
Um, it doesn't matter if you put your best face on, best foot out. This is what we are. You need to remember what you are by nature. We are alienated. Alienated. Notice this. Paul says, remember at that time that you were separated from Christ. Um, by nature, that is all of our spiritual biographies. Um, none of us can claim anything about ourselves. Now, what's interesting about this, and we noted this last week in part, is the man writing this actually had the greatest pedigree. Remember, this is one who was essentially Jewish royalty. He had, he had the lineage, he had the education, he had the respect, he had the religious status, he had it all. And, and this man will say in Philippians that he counted all of that as loss, all of it as dung and rubbish. And here he's telling a people who have been transformed, who have been reconciled to God, who have been given enormous privileges, remember, remember what you were. Um, it's essential for us to do this because if we are ever going to really understand the greatness of what God has done for us, we have to come to terms with the fact of what we were at that time. Um, the apostle here, in talking about spiritual alienation, he actually gives us five categories. You've probably noticed this already. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, number one, separated from Christ. You had no redeemer. You had no savior. There was no forgiveness of sins. There was no hope of salvation because you were separated from Christ. Number two, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no privileges like God had given Israel in the Old Covenant. He had given them his worship, his word, his prophets. He had given them all the things that were necessary means for redemption. And, and we, by nature, didn't even have that. We were aliens from the commonwealth. We were spiritual commoners. We had no means that could help us come to know Christ as God had given Israel in the Old Covenant. And then number three, notice this. He says we were strangers to the covenants of promise. That means the promises that God made to Noah, that, that these men and women, boys and girls, they had no clue about. When they saw a rainbow, they didn't understand. God had said he was never going to destroy the world because he was going to bring a redeemer. They didn't know that by nature. They couldn't read the book of nature and understand the Noahic covenant. They didn't know what promises God had made to Abraham. They were, they were strangers to the covenants of promise. Um, number four, notice Paul is going in, and, and let me just say this this morning. If, if you are here and you are thinking, my, this is just really depressing, it, it is. It's depressing. Paul is trying to bolster our spiritual biography and help us to understand how depressing it is. And he finally says, without hope, there was no way out. I, I remember feeling that as an unbeliever. I remember sitting outside of the restaurant where I was a, a chef in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and I remember thinking, when is God going to save me or kill me? That's, that's hopelessness. That's hopelessness. That's 
That's the spiritual condition all men are in by nature, without hope. And then notice, and this is probably the biggest of the five points of alienation and without God in the world. Now, um, the scriptures say that the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see and all that's in them, that he fills the heavens and the earth, that in him we live and move and have our being. David would say, you are behind me, before me, your hand is upon me. If I make my, my place in the deepest parts of the sea, even there you are. That there's nowhere where God is not. Uh, by the way, um, God fills the heavens and the earth. He's also filling heaven. Um, heaven is God in all his love. And he fills hell. Hell is God in all his wrath. Um, hell is not um, the absence of the presence of God. It's the presence of the just and righteous um, wrath of God. There's nowhere that we can go where God is not. And so that's why this is such a striking term. If that's true, and it is true, to be without God in the world is to have the most miserable of spiritual experiences. I don't know about you, but I remember as a teenager trying to pray and, and, and feeling nothing because at that point I was without God. I didn't know him. I was alienated. I was a stranger. I was without hope. Um, a band that I love, my boys hate, Fish, uh, ha- have a song God doesn't listen to what I say. It's an eerie song to listen to. Uh, there was another band I listened to uh, when I was lost, a band called Mo, and they have a song, Faker, and, and the words are, I am a faker, pretending along, lost sight of my maker. I will die before I finish this song. It's, it's, it gives me goosebumps thinking that people can sing these things, but it's true. It's true. They, they write that because it's true. Uh, Flannery O'Connor speaks of the Christ-haunted South. Um, Why is there so much about Christ in the songs and the literature and the art in the South? Because it's Christ-haunted. Well, Paul is saying here it's the God-haunted world. Without God, and yet he is everywhere. This is his world. Um, We need to remember that we were separate We were excluded. We were foreigners. We were far from God. Now, I want to say this morning, if you've never come to terms with that, I'm here to tell you that's what we all are by nature. And the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we're going to see our need for Christ and our need for reconciliation. And then notice that's where Paul is going. Notice the next stage, verse 13, but now. At that time, you were this, but now. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? We saw in verse 4 that that everything turns on the hinge of the but God. You were this but God who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, raised us up. Now notice this. At that time, you were separated, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
What is it that changes our spiritual biography? The blood of Jesus. What, what writes a new chapter in your life that says you are no longer what you were at that time? It's the cross of Jesus. Um, we sang just a few minutes ago, nothing but the blood. We should never tire of singing that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, what will bring us home? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What brings me out of a state of spiritual alienation? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Um, there have been philosophers and atheists who have complained that Christianity is a, is a religion of blood. It is. It is a religion of blood. Um, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. How are you going to have your sins forgiven on Judgment Day? Because it's all going to be set out in all of its ugliness, all the sinful thoughts, words, and actions we've done, all of them. And it's coming, and it's coming quick. You know, I feel it. I'm 45 this year. I know. I'm not young. People told me in my 20s, it's coming quick. It's coming quick. It's coming far quicker than most of us would be comfortable with. And the only thing, the only thing that can give our consciences peace, that our sins are forgiven, is the blood of Christ. He washes them away. When he sheds his blood on the cross, all the sins that are imputed to him, all of my sins imputed to him, are washed away in that blood. Justice is satisfied. Wrath is propitiated. The soul of Jesus is made an offering for sin. The guilt is atoned for. Isaiah says, and the Lord says through Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. How, how are my sins going to be blotted out like a thick cloud? There must be a suitable, atoning sacrifice. But now... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, and Paul is saying something more than just how will you have your sins forgiven. He is saying that. He said that back in chapter 1, verse 7. He said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. But here he's saying something else. He's saying the blood of Christ does something beyond just forgiving us. We who once were far off, spiritually alienated, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He has, he has reconciled us. Notice this, he himself is our peace. How, how will my soul have peace with God? How do I know that I am reconciled to God? Because the blood of Jesus stands between my soul and the infinitely righteous God and it brings about peace between God and my sinful soul. I've quoted this for you, I know. I love, very much love, John Bunyan's spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. It's a difficult read if you've struggled with assurance because there's a lot of ups and downs in Bunyan's experience. But there's this one really 
glorious moment where Bunyan recounts a day when he is walking through the fields of Bedford and in England in um, 16th century. He's walking out in the field and, and he says, he, was, he said, I, I was musing over the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart and the enmity that was in me to God. And he said, and, and then that word came to me, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. This verse. He said, and, and at that moment when I was thinking of my wickedness, that that word came from the scriptures, he has made peace through the blood of his cross. And Bunyan says, by which I was made to see again and again and again that day, that God and my sinful soul were friends and could embrace and kiss through that blood. God and my sinful soul can embrace and kiss through that blood. That, that's, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying it's not that God just tolerates us. It's that he has done everything to reconcile us, to embrace us, and to bring us home. Um, there's no better picture of what it means to be a true believer than we have in the, the account of the prodigal son. What does it look like to be a Christian? It looks like uh, God reconciling us to himself, God receiving us that we don't deserve it, that we were in the far country, alienated, enemies, strangers. By the way, this should never get old to us. This is so sweet to the soul of somebody who's been redeemed. God has done everything to take me undeserving as I am, to take you alienated as you were, and to bring you home, to embrace you. Think away the father in the in the parable of the prodigal sons, but, but how he treats the younger son. He, he runs out to greet him. He, he grabs him. He embraces him. He weeps on him. He throws the best robe on him. He puts rings on him. He tells his brother who hates what he's doing, go and call all our friends and go kill the best calf because your son has come home. He was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And, and the older brother hates that. He hates hearing this. But, but imagine what's happening in the soul of the younger brother who has gone and squandered everything in the far country. Imagine what he's experiencing. That's, that's what God wants us to understand. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ because he is our peace and has made peace through his blood and here's the amazing thing. The spiritual reconciliation is not just vertical. It's horizontal. Now, it is, it is ontologically impossible. It is ontologically impossible for you to watch the news and not see that we live in a world that is full of hatred and strife. Um, I remember watching the riots in 2020 and thinking, don't these people have jobs? This is what happens when you give people a computer and the internet and free money. You can laugh. That's a joke. It's true. But, but what was fueling, what was fueling 
the hatred. It, it wasn't a sense of injustice. That, that was, that was the, the facade. It's, it's the hatred that, that we, by nature, all of us, have in our hearts toward one another. And there was no greater division or indicator of that hatred in, in Paul's day than the, the, the division between Jews and Gentiles. You know, our country likes to manufacture divisions today. This was not manufactured. In fact, God created the division by separating the Jews from the Gentiles, but the enmity in the hearts of unregenerate Jews to Gentiles and Gentiles to Jews was the greatest division the world has ever seen. And God healed that division through the blood of Jesus. Paul says this. He says, notice, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility in the temple. By the way, in the temple, there was a dividing wall that divided the the court of the Jews from the court of the Gentiles. And it was 40-some inches wide and it all around the inside of the temple. And what it said to Gentiles who wanted to come and wanted to worship God was, you need to stay away because you are not even allowed into this other court where the Jewish people were given access. And then there was a division that went even beyond that division. And it was, it was the veil in the temple that separated the most holy place where God dwelt from every other part of the temple. And what that veil said is, none of you can come near. So you had the division of Jew and Gentile, and then you had the division of the veil and every person behind the veil, outside the veil. And what happened, and you know this if you've read the scriptures, is the Jewish people and their uh, self-righteous pride and their contempt of God's way of salvation in Christ, which he had given them for so long, um, thought that they were better than the Gentiles, and they despised them. And the Gentiles, in reaction, hated the Jews. And, And we see this, don't we? We see it in, in the narrative about the death of Jesus, the, the Romans and the Jews are constantly hating one another. There's hostility. There's a dividing wall. And, and notice what Paul says. Paul says that when Christ hung on the cross, he broke down in his flesh the dividing wall, and he made of the two men one new man, thereby making peace. Now, what Paul is saying here is that, that you who once were alienated through the death of Jesus, have now been brought in and given full membership among the people of God. And I know there's a lot of bad theology out there. I'm here to tell you there's a lot. And I know that there are people that will say the Jewish people have privileges that, that you don't have. That's not true. This passage tells you that's not true. He takes of the two and makes one new man, a new man or woman of grace, from Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. He reconciles together what no one else could do. He destroys the enmity, the hostility. He makes people that otherwise hated each other love each other. By the way, what is going to dispel hatred in the world? The cross, the flesh of Jesus being torn apart in judgment. That's it. There's no other way of peace. You know, I, I, when I planted... The church I planted uh, many, many years ago now, I, I made these visitor cards and mistakenly put, what can we pray for you about 
on there. And I say mistakenly because, you know, some people would be like, pray for world peace. And I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, that's the biggest thing you can go for. That's it. Like, if you're going to have a prayer request, pray for world peace. Um, well, Paul is telling us there is a way to peace in the world. But it, there's only one way, and it's, it's through the flesh of Christ torn apart in judgment on the cross for the sins of his people in order to make of two people one new man. That's what's happened to you. That's your biography now. The, the dark, bleak chapter of alienation has now been superseded with the chapter of reconciliation. And, and Paul's saying, this is who you are now. You are a new man in Christ together, raised up in him, united to him, cleansed by him, reconciled to God through him, reconciled to others in him. This, this is... This is what God accomplished through the death of Jesus. It's so much bigger than just your personal salvation. It is, it is a cosmic re- reconciliation of those for whom he died, those who are trusting in him, in union with him, from every nation of the world. Notice what Paul says in verse 15. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two. So making peace. Those laws, those dietary laws in the Old Testament, those ceremonial laws that kept Israel distinct from the nations, they're abolished. If anybody tries to tell you you can't eat bacon, I'm here to tell you I ate a bunch of it yesterday morning, and it was glorious. And look, it's a little perk of the New Covenant. You couldn't do that in the Old Covenant. The Gentiles did it, the Jews couldn't. It kept them alienated. It kept them separated. Now God has made all things clean. He has removed the law of ordinances that, that kept that division, and, and he has made one new man. And, and notice this. I love this, verse 17. And, and I'm going to stop here this morning. We'll pick up on the habitation next Lord's Day. But notice verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who are near. Now, you have to listen very carefully this morning. I sometimes don't like telling people I'm a pastor because of the responses it elicits. It elicits. Um, I also sometimes try to Think about how foolish what I do every Sunday is in this world. I remember once I was, um, I was ministering an evangelistic mission, and, and I told uh, whoever I was talking to, who was a young, young man that I was studying to be a pastor, and he said, what is that? I mean, this was 20 years ago. That's how far gone our country was. He didn't even know what a pastor was. And I said, well, you know, it's a man that preaches God's word. And he said, so you're kind of like a lawyer. I said, no, not like a lawyer. But far more foolish than a lawyer. But, but here's what I'm telling you this morning. God in Christ has appointed the preaching of the word to be the central means to bring you from spiritual alienation to spiritual reconciliation. And I'm going to go further this morning and say whenever the word of God 
is rightly preached and faithfully divided, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, whenever Christ is held before you, and and whenever you hear uh, in preaching someone saying, Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your soul. Come to me. Whenever you hear that, it is the living Christ preaching to you, not the minister, but Christ through him by his word. Notice what Paul says here. He came and preached peace to you. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? Never. Not physically. When did Jesus come to America? Certainly not when the Mormons said he did. Listen, I will argue with you about that. Jesus never physically came here and gave gold tablets to anybody, ever. But you know when Jesus came to Ephesus and you know when he came to America, whenever the gospel is preached. Notice what Paul says. He came, he came, Christ came, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who are near. And that means what I am doing today and what ministers of the gospel are doing every Lord's Day and should be doing is proclaiming the message that Christ has made peace, and he calls you to know that peace. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to know that you can be at peace with God and with others? You know, every time I go online and I see anger, 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 I'm like, most of us are just trying to get through the day. Yes, yes, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Who wouldn't want peace? Apparently a whole lot of people. But anyone who is in their right mind would have to say, I want my sinful soul to be at peace with the living God. And I, I can have that peace in Christ. I want that, and I am going to him for it. And then you'll be able to say with Bunyan, whenever you remember this, And if you've come to Christ, this needs to wash over us again and again. Remember, Paul says, remember that my sinful soul and God are at peace through that blood and can embrace and kiss through that blood. And as Bunyan said, that is a good day. I hope I shall never forget it. I hope that you know that peace. I hope that you remember what you were. And I hope that you remember what you now are because of what Christ has done for you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do long to know more of the peace that you have um, provided for us through the bloodshed of your Son. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would go to the cross for us, that you would take our hostility, that you would take our enmity, that you would take our alienation, that you would take our sin and our unrighteousness on yourself. We thank you that you would um, produce that peace and reconcile us to God through your blood, and we pray that you would make us to feel and to know these things to be true in our souls. We pray this morning that if any have never been reconciled, that today would be the day of reconciliation and peace. And Lord Jesus, we pray for those who have perhaps forgotten about the peace that they already have and that you have already brought about, that you would remind and 
renew in us a, 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 a true spiritual sight and sense of these things. And so, our God, we thank you and praise you. We bless you for the death of Christ. We pray that you would fix our eyes on him and that you would sit us at the foot of the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.